Nice. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, welcome to reInvent uh, 2016. Um, this will be my third year at reInvent, uh, and so I'm really excited to see all the growth, um, especially in the healthcare space. You probably, I think I've met with a lot of you already uh, this year, um, and you've probably seen on our session track, we have more and more sessions about healthcare and life sciences. So this will be one focused primarily on a compliance topic that's near and dear to my heart, uh, data integrity. Um, so, and joining me today is Yano-san from Sysmex in uh, Japan. And so we'll be, I'll, I'll start off, uh, Yano-san will share a case study that they worked on, and then I'll close out um, with some information on data integrity controls. So we'll be looking, first of all, at a high-level overview of data integrity in healthcare. It may be a little different for some of you who are coming from the pure developer world. Um, uh, we'll talk about a, an example with uh, Sysmex and GXP, and then I'll wrap it up with a top 10 overview of data integrity controls that regulators are really emphasizing, both in their guidance to customers or, or to industry, as well as the inspection findings. Um, so when they audit companies, what are they seeing? So uh, my name's Chris Wally. I lead AWS's medical security team, and my team has a scope that really spans um, anything having to do with healthcare or life sciences, both on the research side, the healthcare delivery side, and the medical product side. So pharma companies, medical device companies, as well as uh, genomics research, um, anything around the world having to do with healthcare and security, um, we get involved in pretty deeply. Um, I spend about half my day working internally within AWS and service teams, and then I spend the other half with customers and working through their, um, their solutions and the control requirements that they have. So uh, today we'll focus on integrity, the, the one, one part of the triad. I think confidentiality and privacy get a lot of play, and rightly so. Um, but integrity is one of those things that, uh, particularly in the medical product space, in the pharma and medical device, um, where they emphasize a lot about making sure that data is reliable and accurate. Um, so when we talk about data integrity in healthcare, it's really about making sure the data um, that the clinicians are using, that uh, quality assurance managers of manufacturing are using to make decisions that impact safety of people. So if they use a piece of data to approve the release of a drug uh, to go out into the marketplace, um, they need to know that that data is good, right? They're making a decision that could affect all of us um, on that data. And so really the, the goal here is to make sure that data is valid enough to make for human safety decisions. And traditionally, this has been um, kind of a paper-based world. A lot of these companies are coming from. Um, lab notebooks have all, almost always been bound, spiral-bound things. And a lot of the controls and emphasis that regulators have had came out of that paper-based world. And now that we're in this electronic records world, they're, they're basically all the old controls still apply, and there are some extra ones because of the nuance of running electronic systems. So this acronym, ALCOA, if you've been in the healthcare space uh, for any amount of time, probably is familiar to you. Um, really, uh, it was developed out of the paper world again, so some of these things look a little uh, foreign, but I think we'll talk about how you can translate the principles to the electronic uh, and software world. And when we talk about data, too, I think especially for uh, technologists, it's important to distinguish between the bits on the disk and the scientific data that's being used to make decisions. They're related, but they're different, and the data integrity mechanisms are different for each one. 
Um, and so on the left-hand side there, you see examples of scientific data. So that might be um, the pH of a solution, right, or the p-value of a clinical trial. That's data that can only be derived from analyzing a bunch of other bits on the disk and a human determining that that's the value. Um, but then on the computer side, right, what is the input-output? What are the checksums? Um, you know, what, what are the file sizes? Those, I, I just put this in context so that we understand it's more than just bits on the disk. And from the regulator perspective, this is really important. So here we see some examples of things that regulators find when they go and audit companies. Um, so lack of controls to prevent substitution or overriding of data. Um, if, again, that's a huge problem if you're trying to use that data uh, to make a decision and anybody could overwrite it and no, have no traceability. Um, they need to, the uh, companies in the healthcare space need to make sure um, that there's access controls. Um, uh, sending data from an instrument to a PC without an audit trail. Many of you are probably using IoT now, um, trying to figure out ways to connect either devices or uh, in a laboratory setting or even devices that go to people um, for healthcare. Um, how do you use IoT to deliver data from the device to the system in the cloud running on an EC2 instance and, and provide all the audit trails necessary to show the provenance of that data? Um, in this case, the company couldn't do that, um, and they got cited for it. Um, data was not reviewed or evaluated by your firm when making batch release decisions. So this is less about the technical controls now and more about the policy around the gates of a procedure um, for when does a human need to look at things and make a decision. Um, and then lastly, um, we have an example of a company basically performing a bunch of tests and getting different results every time and picking the one result that they liked that fit the story of success for them and deleting all the old data that didn't fit their story of success. So um, again, how do we put audit trails around this so whatever data is created can't be deleted even if it, uh, it doesn't tell us the story we want. In some cases, that's the most important data because that will lead to improvements later on. Um, so again, putting controls around that um, is really critical for any developer who's got an end user who may not be uh, tech a technologist. They may be a scientist, they may be a clinician, um, you know, have different levels of skill with computers. Um, some, some of these things might have happened well by accident. So um, as the gatekeepers of the electronic systems, it's up to us to put those controls in place to make sure whether unintentionally or intentionally um, users don't uh, invalidate the data integrity. And then on the right here, we have um, the regulators themselves are increasingly not only citing companies in their audits, but producing guidance documents on what needs to happen. Um, this is kind of a new world we're living in. The rules for a long time have been very vague, like um, you must have change control as appropriate. Well, what's appropriate? What's control? Um, and now they're getting more prescriptive in the types of controls um, that they expect to see when they come to audit you. So um, I can provide a list to anyone who's really interested in these guidance documents. Um, and then also, again, you can see from the warning letters, um, is this isn't just a US issue. This is actually an international issue. Um, one of the value propositions of the cloud is the, the ease of deployment and going global, right? Um, going scaling from one customer and one site to many customers to many countries. And as you do that, the rules for data integrity may change from each region to region that you go in. Um, so this really is, is highlighting the need to really take a global perspective um, on your systems and also one of the reasons why um, Sysmex is joining today to really provide that kind of international flavor to this topic um, that's much needed. 
So if it's more than just bits on the disk, um, how do we go about applying these principles? And so um, really there's controls for humans. And this primarily consists of training and awareness, right? Getting people to understand, um, you know, how do I build systems with these controls in place? What are the tools available to me if you're a developer? On the other hand, if you're a user, you may need to know what are the limitations of the system I'm using? Um, what, what procedures do I need to follow in order to make sure that the whole system, people, process, and technology has data integrity throughout it? Um, again, the, the policy and procedure conversation is one that I spend most of my time on. I think the IT and security teams are very adept at understanding technical controls and applying those in their systems. Um, but when it comes to policy and procedure, it's an area where a lot of companies are still um, on that learning curve of what, what does a good policy look like? And this isn't a policy for like encryption. This is a policy for people to follow and read. Um, so I think in my uh, forecast for next year, that's really going to be an area where my team focuses a lot of time, and I hope by this time next year, we get to share more information with you about um, prescriptive guidance for helping your compliance and quality teams get those policies and procedures uh, ready for the technologists to build the cloud, the cloud tools. So then we also have these uh, controls for machines, and I just wanted to touch on this topic here. We'll transition over to uh, Yano-san, and then I'll pick back up with an analysis of those five documents, and we'll talk about the top 10 controls that we see regulators wanting for data integrity and some of the ways that you can meet it on AWS. So thank you again, and here's Yano-san. Okay. Okay, thank you, Chris. Uh, it's a great honor for us to be here uh, from Japan, uh, Seismics Corporation. Uh, one of the features of the AWS events is that the AWS users voluntarily share their own experience with transparency. And I have a lot from you guys, so that uh, it's, it's a, I'm so excited to share my experience and to return the favor to you. Okay? And uh, Sysmix is a Japanese company established in 1968. And uh, we are the integrated supplier of the instrument, reagent, and software uh, that are essential to the testing processes uh, performed during the health check and the treatment and the ongoing uh, disease management. And our company's name uh, is named after the coined word, the, which stands for Systematical Medics and uh, Infinity Symbol X. Uh, our corporate mission uh, defines our raison d'etre, uh, reason to exist, and state how we hope to contribute to the society. In the field of the uh, hematology, which involves the red and white uh, blood cells, the Sysmex group holds the top share of the global market. And our products are used uh, in uh, medical institutions in more than 190 countries. Uh, we have uh, concentrated on the field diagnostics. Here, the, the company has played the, the integrated role of the testing control and testing of the blood and the urine samples and have expanded into the several fields of the in vitro uh, diagnostics and expanded our uh, operations onto the global scale. And this slide shows uh, uh, our business outlook and uh, uh, our business has achieved the remarkable growth over the uh, past decade. The net sales uh, has grown for 16 years in a row and uh, operating income has grown uh, 15 years uh, uh, consecutively. Though the Sysmex is a Japanese company, uh, more than 80% of sales uh, come from outside of Japan. 
And I want to touch on a couple of uh, recognitions from the, uh, from the outside, uh, from the market. Uh, for example, we are listed as uh, one of the top five most innovative companies by Forbes this year. Uh, and uh, actually, four Japanese companies are nominated, are listed on the top 50 listed, but uh, we are one of them. And uh, we have also been included in the Dow Jones Sustainability Index from this year. Okay. And uh, let me touch on, and let me move on uh, my department, Information Solutions. Uh, is responsible for the global IT strategy development as a, a headquarter team. And in parallel, uh, we are helping the, our uh, corporate system implementations uh, based on the, our uh, customer needs and uh, provide ongoing system uh, support as well. Uh, today, I'd like to pick up one uh, global project I have worked on and as a, a case study. And uh, as uh, Chris said, the, we are, uh, we need to address the GXP compliance and so on, but uh, I hope that you are enjoying our case study. Uh, our operating environment is growing over more complex and uh, uncertain, and well, we are expanding in a global scale, so that we need to respond the swiftly to emerging changes. The, in such circumstances, the, our user requirements has been increasing, like uh, uh, 24 support, for the, the global systems, and they require the more agility for the new system setups. And needless to say, security is always top priority for us. So the, in general, uh, we want to be the early adapter for the new technologies. Like uh, we already introduced IoT to monitor the, our uh, ongoing the instrumental status check, and we delivered the iPhone, the iPad for the Japan-based employees already. But, uh, we are likely to be a bit, bit conservative, or uh, we want to be careful about the uh, cloud technology introduce, uh, introduction because of the uh, security risk. And uh, in order to leverage the uh, cloud technology, uh, we have discussed how the, uh, uh, the global uh, cloud security policy uh, should be developed with the global leadership, IT leadership team. Like uh, we refer to the ENISA, NIST, and Miti uh, uh, from Japan governance, we are leading the, these security guidelines. And uh, we, uh, we also uh, delivered the SARS checklist for the, some, uh, the users' the requirements. Uh, you know, we, based, we developed this um, guideline based on the METI guideline and, uh, so that we can control the, these, our business users' SARS requirements needs. And uh, for example, the e-learning system and so on, with checking their, their security that we uh, approve to introduce their SaaS uh, systems for our company. And for EAS and the SaaS uh, services, the, our mission, the, our uh, development mission is to uh, provide the infrastructure platform for the, our business users. So uh, we have provided the resources, for example, in this in current now, uh, the, our international internal server room uh, management is done by ourselves, and uh, we have provided such resources to the, our business users. And uh, it's critical to establish the selection and the concentration strategy to liberate the EAS services, so that we have evaluated a lot of EAS and the past services. And uh, you can see the, how we are uh, thinking about the AWS. The, we are, of course, we are aware that uh, AWS is uh, overwhelming 
the market leader in EAS and the PaaS services. But uh, we are pretty much interested in the large community with engineers and the uh, partners and also the, uh, our, the user companies. So that we are pretty much interested in the data, uh, sorry, information exchange uh, or uh, ex uh, to share the, uh, our experience so that we can talk about the future and let's talk about the, our innovation seeds and the ecosystem idea and so on. I just ran the, the application of the reInvent. The, have you tried? You know, the, you can see my, my name, for example, from this application. So I'm happy to talk with you the, in a couple of days. And uh, uh, you are, any comments or any feedback are highly welcomed. Okay. And for this session, I'd like to pick up this case study. Uh, I'd like to focus, uh, uh, sorry, that we kicked off the project to introduce a quality compliant management project. Uh, and uh, uh, we need to collect the compliant information about our product from all over the world. And uh, so far, uh, we have managed such a, uh, information via email or phone, but it's not easy right now because uh, we are operating more than 190 countries. So uh, we need to introduce the one single system so that, for example, the, in Japan, we have a headquarter and we played as a third level escalation point. But uh, it's not easy to reach to the all over the world, so that we, we decided to introduce such a one global system. And uh, uh, this is to address the, our compliant management information. So we need to observe GXP compliance, and also we need to meet uh, ERES requirements here. And uh, uh, well, and this application itself is a package software, so that uh, it's called as a configurated software because we need to modify the, our workflow. And uh, so that you can think that it's a uh, category four in the GAMP5 uh, definition. And in parallel with uh, application software validation, the, we started option studies about our infrastructure platform. This slide shows the, some key highlights of the, our user requirements. First of all, the system should capture the information from all over the world, so the 24-7 support is required, regardless of the location of the server rooms, of the, of the holiday, uh, holiday schedule, and so on. And on the other hand, the, fortunately, the uh, frankly speaking, it's not a mission-critical system uh, compared to the ERP system and so on, uh, because the, we already have uh, alternative solutions in case of the uh, system trouble and so on. And, uh, and, uh, and the system architecture is very simple. We have only three servers, reporting server, uh, application server, and database server. Very simple uh, architecture. And uh, another thing is that uh, about the long-term data storage. For this case, we need to keep the, this information for 15 years, 15 years. And uh, I think for in general, for the medical industry, I think you need to keep the, the data for 20 years or 30 years uh, to follow the, the legal, uh, legal law. Okay? So uh, for these uh, user requirements, we think that we, can, we might be use, uh, we might be able to use the cloud. Maybe cloud might be the lead option for this infrastructure. For example, for 15 years uh, data storage, you know, the, I'm still having a floppy disk or a cassette tape and so on, but uh, I don't think that it's readable now for most of the devices. So, you know, you might save the data in the CDR and so on, 
But I think about 15 years later, you know, do you think that the CDR is readable? No, right? So that, for example, for uh, AWS S3, you know, that their availability is 99.999.11.9, very high reliability. So that the, the cloud is more suitable for such a long-term data storage. This is another view that we are thinking. So the, we, we try to think about the cloud as a lead option for this system infrastructure. And this is just a, just a project schedule. And this was kicked off in September. And by the way, personally, I joined the SysMex in October 1st. And suddenly, I was assigned for this technical lead. And I, I need to start, the, I need to develop the sandbox by the end of October. And uh, it, it, I have to be very hurry for this project. But uh, AWS helped. Well, the, I could start up the three instances in two hours. So, you know, I, I, I succeeded in the procurement of this sandbox environment. And uh, in this week, uh, I just watched the video of reInvent. By the way, the, this was the first time for me to uh, operate cloud or AWS. But uh, so I, I learned a lot about for the AWS. And in last year, a uh, very interesting idea was shared. You know, the, by introducing cloud in the cloud era, maybe validation actions can be transferred to the code-driven automated activities. Okay, so far we developed a lot of documents, lot of documents, but uh, we might be moved to the cloud uh, code-driven automated activities. I'll touch on how we, we uh, judge the, this, uh, this view later on. And in January and February, the very helpful information was shared, like a GXP white paper by AWS. And this is only for Japanese, but a Japanese, uh, some system integrators issued a good reference about uh, for GXP compliance. So upon the, these available resources, we, have, we discussed the feasibility and we made a decision around May before the uh, software validation target from July, early July. And first of all, uh, we studied AWS reliability. Well, the, we have some trust because uh, already, already the U.S. government used the AWS solution in their uh, cloud, uh, special cloud area. So I believe that the AWS has uh, somehow, AWS might be the secure platform for us. And actually, I read the white paper about the GXP systems, uh, GXP compliance issued in January. And we confirmed that uh, uh, several professional certifications, like uh, ISO 9001, 27001, and uh, 27000, 20, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, Two weeks late, uh, two weeks ago, uh, then we checked, checked the, their uh, functions. For example, API Gateway or uh, Lambda was not in the list of the uh, ISO 27001. Okay. But uh, they, were, they updated the ISO certifications, and now the API Gateway or uh, Lambda is now in the list of the ISO certifications. But uh, we are not such a level to use the, the, the Lambda and so on. 
uh, we use the EC2, S3, CrowdFormation, CrowdTrail, and so on. Uh, but uh, we, we checked the, the, these ISO certifications on their, uh, on their official list. And uh, in addition, uh, let me introduce uh, some regional practice. The, we leveraged the AWS utilization reference for life science industry published in February and by Japanese five system integrators. Uh, in Japan, MHLW, Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare, uh, provides a guideline of the management of computerized systems of marketing authorization holders and manufacturers of drugs and quasi-drugs. Sorry, I'm reading this. Uh, but uh, you can think that it's a kind of the YAMP5 in the US. And uh, in Japan, we, we need to follow the, such a guideline. And uh, one of the beauty of this guideline or reference is that, for example, there are many, many chapters. Like uh, there are nine chapters in the, our Japanese government guideline. Uh, this reference uh, shows us some uh, correspondence between the each chapter and the class and third party certifications. For example, 6.3, chapter 6.3, performing maintenance and the checking management. And for, to address the, this requirements, this reference says that we need to refer to ISO 2701, 7.381, 9.1, 9.3. And uh, for example, 6.5, backup and backup and uh, This is both uh, accountability for AWS and the users. But for the AWS part, it's a black box for us, right? You know, we don't know where the location of the uh, Tokyo available zone, availability zone A, for example. We cannot look at the operations. But uh, we can see the third-party certifications then uh, to check the, if they observe such a requirement. For example, ISO 9001 and SOC 1-2. You know, upon the NDA, you can get the SOC 1-2 information from, any, uh, from AWS. And by looking at these third-party certifications, the, you can check that if the AWS can meet the GXP compliance. And this is the life cycle that, that uh, our Japanese government uh, defines. But it's, I think it's a global uh, flow from the, from, uh, from the uh, system setup and uh, retirement. And uh, this guideline, this reference, follows the, the uh, orange part like uh, part of the operations and the supplier audit and uh, supplier assessment and so on. And for the other part, like uh, setting the uh, guideline, the standard code and so on, it's a common rule regardless of the infrastructure. And for others, like uh, to capture the user requirement specifications, uh, functional specification and so on, they are common regardless of the infrastructure. So we can uh, have a same step that we have done so far. On the, uh, for the on-premise. Let me touch on the IQ later because the, we expect some changes for the IQ by introducing the cloud and on the cloud era. Okay, let me summarize the operation part. Uh, first of all, we should understand the several AWS functionalities. Let me check. This here. The, we need to accept some game change or paradigm shift here. Uh, to do the uh, data backup, Let's leverage S3. And uh, for monitoring, CrowdTrail, CrowdWatch. And for the proper account management, we need to make use of the IAM. This is the game change compared to the uh, on-premise era. And, on, and in parallel, 
that we need to check the how the AWS, uh, sorry, how the AWS can guarantee the uh, high reliable, high reliable operations. Well, the, with SOC 1-2 and the ISO certifications, that you can use should read every chapter and to check if the, the, they are meeting with the GXP compliance. That's a user company's responsibility, okay? And, uh, uh, you know, actually AWS maintains and the good uh, practices for the internal training, documentation, system monitoring, and so on. So that you can double check the, for the, from the third-party certifications. And in the next couple of slides, let me share our key takeaways about IQ activities. And uh, I'm, this illustrates the system architecture that we designed. And uh, uh, to ensure our uh, security requirements, verification, verification and the production uh, environment are set up in a VPC, virtual private cloud. And our end user can access to the, this, this application server via Direct Connect. And our uh, third party, third party vendor, uh, can log in via RDP through the Sophos UTM. This is uh, the overview architecture for this uh, system. And uh, actually, this is production and validation. Uh, no ELB on this system. We can, we can accept 99.5 uh, availability for this system. And the key point is here, to develop, uh, to develop our validation target, you know, you can create these instances. You can set up these instances by, log by logging, logging in into the uh, management console. You can do the manual handling. But um, maybe you don't, you don't take such action. I think you need to, you, you want to leverage AW cloud formation, right? And if you upload the cloud formation program, program into the S3, and you can run the, on the S3, and you can get all of the system logs. You can, you can check the, what's happened in your management console. So this is actually the JSON format that we used. And for, that's only for six instances. Well, the number of lines is about 800. Very, very short program. And in this short program, the, this includes all of the information about the uh, instances or subnet or the VPCs and so on. All of the infrastructure information is included in cloud formation. Okay. And theoretically, we understand, theoretically we understand that this code includes everything about the, so the infrastructure and with maybe system logs, maybe we can declare that that's the evidence of the IQ. Okay. Theoretically, we understood. However, we are thinking about the risk about this. For example, for the, uh, we, whether we have accountability. Well, we, we can explain whether it's same. This is same as this infrastructure. Well, the, due to the time constraints, the we, frankly speaking, for this project case, uh, we gave up. We gave up. So uh, we took a lot of screenshot and more than 180 screenshots, and I have uh, 68 pages for the validation document. However, we felt a lot of possibility about this idea. So this is the one point that I want to share. I think if you want to reapply this approach, 
maybe you face this difficulty. Okay? And I don't think, for example, for SysMex, we cannot solve this, this issue by ourselves. So that's why I'm here. Uh, today, the, one of the key points of the, my uh, presentation is that maybe we need to have a large community to tackle on this issue. Maybe this is a universal issue, universal challenge for us. So uh, let me summarize the, uh, our validation activities. This is a recap. Uh, first of all, procurement. I can say the, our traffic signal is green. Okay? You know, by using the AWS, the, for the beginners, I was actually really beginners of the AWS. Uh, I succeeded in a procurement the three servers for Sandbox three servers in two hours. Okay. It's pretty fast than the on-premise. And operation planning, it's, uh, well, the green and the yellow. This means that, uh, well, the, we need to have uh, some growing pains, first of all. We need to understand all of the uh, AWS functionalities, and we need to revisit the ISO certifications and the GAM5 and so on, these uh, document. And also we need to look at, look, go through the SOC 1-2 that the AWS has. Okay. So that it's a, there is a uh, growing pain, but I can say that this will be, this will be blue for the second and third uh, practices. And for IQ effort, I just, just as yellow. Uh, to be exact, the, we succeeded in the reducing the IQ effort for the, for example, network setup and so on. So far, we need to visit the, our server rooms uh, and we need to touch on the telecom and so on and to see the network configurations. But we can check the, these network configurations on management console. So I can say that part of IQ effort was reduced by the crowd, on the crowd. However, most of the effort was not saved. You know, we need to, we had to take a, a similar approach that we have taken for, on the on-premise. But I believe that theoretically, it might be possible. So uh, I want to share our experience here today. And uh, I want to touch on some uh, uh, key enabler to make it happen. Uh, I think you want to take a photo here please upload to the, your blog. Uh, special thanks to NTT Docomo. Uh, they provide the, kind of the guideline. NTT Docomo is uh, one of the biggest Japanese mobile phone carriers, and they leveraged AWS to run their uh, mobile phone applications. And uh, they share their own cloud management policies to observe the ISO 27017, and they, their policy also includes the education material for the internal users. So this is a Bible for us to see, to manage the EAS and the path management. And the class method is one of five Japanese SI premier consulting partners. But uh, in this morning, there are more, more two uh, premier uh, companies are added. The, it was announced, so it's now seven, one of seven. But uh, uh, they also helped to liberate, and sorry, they helped the uh, AWS setup. And uh, I want to highlight Hitachi and uh, Fila Systems. They are the uh, two, they are, uh, they are the, uh, also the AWS reference guideline issued in Japan. The actually five uh, system integra integrators that issued this reference, but uh, uh, Hitachi and the Hilas are part of them. And for validation activities and the document support, we got a lot of effort, a uh, lot of support from them. 
you know, actually Hitachi is very famous in Japan for the uh, medical industry, and uh, they have a lot of experience for the GXP compliances. And uh, for this particular uh, software, package software, Hitachi is a seller in Japan, Japan market, so the Hitachi is very familiar with this ap application itself. And the filler systems, they are a small company in Japan, and, but uh, uh, they, uh, they support uh, uh, these activities uh, with super agility, and uh, uh, they also support uh, some English translation for the, the validation document and so on. Okay, here are the, our key learnings and some expectations. For system infrastructure choices, though it's a common suggestion for ourselves for the next project, uh, carefully consider why you use cloud or on-premise based on the business needs. Okay. And we need to review the latest available resources like uh, GXP white paper or AWS reference that without looking at these latest information, maybe it was tough for us to decide the, the, to liberate AWS. And uh, uh, the use case sharing will help the ecosystem development. So I expect that today's opportunity to share our uh, experience and uh, to, let's exchange our uh, opinion about uh, these activities. And for Amazon, uh, you know, please keep your strategy to listen to users. And uh, so that uh, I believe that the, the AWS is a good listener from the users to develop the new functions. And this is the last slide from my side. Uh, that's our corporate mission statement. And one of us, each of us, uh, need to think about how to contribute, contribute to this. Uh, well, and I personally believe that, that our case study sharing will contrib contribute to the, this health industry. And I'm looking forward to talking with you continuously in a couple of days. Thank you for listening. Nice, uh, thank you, Yano-san. So I think that will give you kind of a high level altitude of the process where data integrity controls may apply. And what we'll do now is kind of dive into some more of the detail, individual controls and some of the strategies that you can use throughout the life cycle. Um, so the, the number one, and these are ranked in order of kind of their importance that we saw um, across the five documents and, and uh, warning letters that we reviewed. Um, the number one thing is a risk-based approach. So many of you in the security world using your security risk assessment, that's absolutely in line with this. I think the other part of that now is really adding in um, these, uh, the additional controls for data integrity and thinking through not just the risk of the system while it's operating, but the risk of each phase of supplier procurement, of planning, of the validation, um, and of operations as well. So don't just think about your system in its final state. Think about it from the time it's an idea all the way through the planning and development stage. Um, the, you know, we, we provide a lot of information, like Yano-san mentioned, around our compliance reports, uh, white papers, so that you can do that risk assessment in a meaningful way. We also have um, solution architects and security solution architects who are able to answer any questions that you have that aren't already answered in our, in our publications. Um, and so performing that risk assessment obviously is your team's responsibility, making sure that you own your system and the risks associated with it. Um, 
the other aspect in just by us providing the tools and configurations, um, you know, each tool, S3, may be configured for data integrity in a different way from system to system. So that flexibility of the tools is what we do to, to help you meet your requirements. But then really understanding at your system level, what are the requirements, what are the configurations needed to meet those requirements, and then how do you test and ensure that they're enforced throughout the life cycle. Um, restricting access to data. It seems pretty simple, right? But there's still a lot of companies that get cited for failure to restrict data access. Um, as we saw in those other examples, people were overriding data with no audit trail, no access controls. Um, so it sounds simple to many of us who are used to developing um, highly robust systems, but at an industry scale, this is still a problem um, and will continue to be until we get better at, at doing this. Um, the other aspect is restrict access to the audit. Um, okay, so this is restricting access to data access controls. Um, it's the second part of that, that's right. So um, these are some of the tools you're already familiar with that you can use. Um, the SDKs in particular are, are very important at the software layer. Make sure that you're invoking the, the functions that you need um, to trigger those audit trails, to capture user commands, to actually prompt users for reasons for change. That's, a, that's another big element. Um, you know, it's very easy to log an activity, but it's hard to associate the human intent behind that activity with the machine transaction at the API level. So you need to figure out where the key um, points that you have to prompt a user to provide that meaning and then capture that and associate it with the machine logs that are kept in CloudTrail or S3 or wherever um, you generate and store your logs. The audit trail itself needs to be protected. So it's not just enough to protect your content. The audit trail around it is as valuable from the regulator perspective as the data. It tells the story of how the data was made, what happened to it throughout its life cycle, and if needed, at the end of its retention cycle, what happened when you destroyed it. Is it, is it really gone? Um, so having those audit trail uh, controls to keep the right audit trails. You may not to keep, need to keep every single log. Um, maybe you only need to keep the ones that were wrong or the ones that proved a key part of your infrastructure um, was built the way you say that it was. Um, but really identifying what are the audit trails I need to keep and then putting access controls around those so you don't get rid of them accidentally or uh, unfortunately uh, maliciously. Um, so this word contemporaneously is a really like compliancy word. Like I've said this word to a lot of technologists and they're just like, what does that mean? Um, and it really came out of the idea of the handwritten uh, records, where the idea is recording data at the time that you collect it. So if you're looking through a microscope and you're counting cells um, and you're going to record that cell count value somewhere in a form or in a logbook, doing it right when you perform the activity and then capturing the date and time that uh, the event occurred. Now, in the physical world of paper, that it's a much more important control. I think uh, in the electronic world, it's really translated to um, distributed systems, like making sure that you're synchronizing time systems, right? If you've got a server in Europe and a server in the US, make sure that you're using the same base of time on each of those so that if you need to tell the story at a global scale, you can you know, fast forward and rewind and really see in real time where did things happen. Um, um, we've got built-in time zone controls into many of our tools, but then again, at the software layer, you may also need to consider how you develop the software to account for time zones. Um, and again, the SDKs are, are a good way to do that. Um, you know, the best way to control blank paper form is to not have it. 
but if you have to have it. Um, creating that, uh, I think we have some good examples. Uh, one of the examples, Captricity, working with HHS, I think we have on our, uh, either on our YouTube or our website. Um, and, and they tell a story about how FDA is using a data capture pipeline for safety reports um, and then publishing those reports onto a public website um, so you can download and analyze the trends. Um, that's a good example that you could apply in your own organizations where if you have blank paper forms or lab notebooks that you need to ensure are protected, um, creating that imaging pipeline um, so that you can capture very quickly those paper forms um, and, and retain the electronic image um, as long as you need to retain the record. And then it's not just enough just to have the logs. You actually have to review them. Someone's got to look at them. Um, you know, if something goes wrong, it's up to us to figure out what is going wrong. And the way we figure, you know, get those flags is from the logs themselves. So a lot of our, um, a lot of uh, teams that I've seen implement this through either Lambda functions where they're um, scanning pools of logs looking for out-of-spec events that will trigger somebody either in the security or the compliance team to do an investigation. Um, and we also have partners in the marketplace and others who provide out-of-the-box solutions that will do that uh, as, a, as a tool that you can buy instead of roll your own. Um, it really depends on kind of what, your, what the scale and scope of your system is going to be if you're purchasing your system versus building it yourself. Um, but just some simple guidelines here. Retention of audit trails. So not just controlling access, but controlling how long you keep them. Um, again, it's a lot of record retention schedules that I've seen are really good about the data itself. Um, they're, you know, if this is, uh, you know, some patient information, it's very clear how long to keep the data. But as you start getting more and more away from that direct content into the metadata or the audit trails, um, a lot of the record retention policies that I see are not including those as retainable items. So making sure you work with your compliance teams to identify what do you need to keep? Is it in your record retention policy? How do I build rules around it to keep it? Um, like Glacier has Vault Lock, for example, where you could create a read-only vault to store those records um, with a lock on it for a certain amount of time so that they can't be deleted up until that retention period. But then you might also need a human process around that once the Vault Lock unlocks um, to say, do we really want to delete that data? Is it really okay? Even though we've kept it the amount of time that our record retention schedule required, um, maybe there's a business need to keep it longer. Maybe there's something else about that data that's important. So again, this is kind of the intersection of like the human controls of policy and the technology controls that we bake into the system. And that's really the next evolution for healthcare. Um, we're on the front end of the adoption curve now. Um, the, the policy piece is probably the next big chunk to, to accelerate that wave even further. Obviously, validating your systems um, is very important. And it's funny, we have a lot of controls around the, the system itself, and yet we're still using paper-based validation, right? I think Yano-san's example is a great um, case study in that. Even though they weren't able to use uh, CloudTrail to prove their validation policy was met, we do have other customers who have done this. And one of the interesting things we, we talk about with them is, you know, is your auditor ready to look at logs? Um, you know, if you've got an auditor who has 20 years experience at looking in documents in a paper form that have certain characteristics, and all of a sudden you're the outlier and you present a bunch of JSON files to them, you know, are they ready for that? You know, is that really the auditor experience you want to have? So um, it's, it's being aware of who you're trying to present the information to and giving it in the form that they're best able to, to see the answer in. 
Um, in some cases, we've had customers build full pipelines of document generators that pull CloudTrail data into a thing that looks like a PDF, um, simply so the format is familiar to their auditors. On the other hand, we've had customers who build training modules for the auditors themselves to say, you know, do that translation ahead of time before they present the evidence. So they can say, you know, to the auditor, you may be used to seeing it in this format. In our team, we keep it in this other format, and here's a traceability matrix between the two. Um, so we have yet, uh, I have yet to see the industry standardize on one approach, um, but I think in the spirit of Yano-san's suggestion, it would be good for all of us to come together to figure out what are the ways or way um, that we want to present this information to people who don't build these tools all day long. And then, of course, senior management responsibility. So this, this one in particular stood out to me um, from the perspective of the guidance documents. And I, I, it's, it's something that's uh, emphasized a lot on the patient safety side. Um, and I think it's really interesting now to see it on the data governance side, where really, you know, we are the owners of the system and the builders of the system. But at the end of the day, you know, the senior management of the organization that you belong to has to be accountable. It's not enough just to say we're all in, but not provide the training and resources that you need to get there. And so really, we gotta help our, our leaders understand in the healthcare community what it means to, be, uh, to have a data governance program, what, how it affects developers, technologists, compliance people. You know, they're the ones who are probably gonna have to sign on the policy being approved, the change for that. So getting them up to speed on, on why we're making these changes, why it's accelerating adoption of the cloud, why it's better um, than some of the traditional approaches we've had. Um, I think that's, that's also our, our, our collective learning curve here. Um, again, we have a lot of documentation to help you tell that story um, when you get authorization to take training. There's a ton of content directly from us as well as from our partners, um, and we're happy to come help you figure out what that training plan should look like with your team. And then also this open culture of reporting errors. So as we saw um, in some of those examples from the regular, regulator audit reports, um, clearly there was not oversight um, that errors should be reported. There was this culture of it's okay to overwrite the data, it's okay to throw out data that doesn't fit the story that we want. Um, and so um, I think this, again, it's, it's just more awareness about how the full 360 of the organization needs to come together to solve this one problem. Um, it's not just for the system builders to solve by themselves. Um, we're certainly a big part of it, um, but we need senior management to also be aware of this, uh, um, the impact that they have on getting the, the culture of our teams to be open about sharing things. Because ultimately, when we want to do an improvement, we have to recognize a deficiency somewhere. So um, it's really a, the kind of the Kappa cycle in action. Um, so these slides will all be available for you, um, anyone who wants them to follow up. They're text heavy, so I'm sure there'll be a lot to read and digest after, and we're gonna be around for a few minutes, so if anyone wants to come ask questions, uh, please do so. And thank you all, and please fill out your evaluations. So, thanks.